You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we focus on the return to the classroom. School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto joins us to talk about the issues that are top of mind, safety and learning in our public schools during this next phase of the pandemic. Good morning, Superintendent. Good morning, Catherine. It's great to be with you again. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, we got through, you know, this last year and a half. It's been such a challenge for everybody. You know, we got through graduations and we just got through summer school. Tell us, yeah, you know, it's what... it's unbelievable. Yeah. What are the reports <laughs> from the field? How did it go? Well, we graduated over 10,000 students and I'm very proud of each and every one of them and all the teachers and principals and staff that worked with them. We also just finished summer school. We had the largest summer school that we've ever offered. Uh, and because of federal relief funds, we were able to offer that at no cost. We had over 25,000 students participating in just over 220 or so schools. And so all of our schools were open and buzzing and active. Uh, if they weren't having summer school in place, they had construction projects happening. And so uh, we are uh, actively open, which is really exciting. We opened up many of our elementary schools during fourth quarter, and I think that was a great lead-in to a summer school that has turned out to be highly effective and highly engaging and really has prepped us well for the new school year. Okay, so the big question is, are we going to be ready on August 2nd when most of the schools go back in? <laughs> so August 3rd is our first day of school for students, and we are excited about welcoming them all back. We know that there are different uh, feelings about this. This has been an unusual year. Uh, folks have had to make all kinds of adjustments from how they go out and purchase food safely and who and how they interact with family um, and how they have engaged in learning and how they worked uh, or, or did their, 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 uh, their paid work uh, with their jobs. It's just been huge adjustments. But we are ready to welcome students back as the economy is opening and as we are very focused on ensuring that we have a majority of our population vaccinated uh, amongst our educators. We're really excited about it. We've had over 100 school-based clinics just since May, and we're, we have uh, somewhere between 54, 56. Six uh, percent of our student population vaccinated with at least one uh, dose, if not both doses. And I, I am calculating it will probably slightly higher than that. So we will continue these clinics. We're excited about uh, school reopening, but also ensuring that it's a safe reopening. And, you know, the big news last week was the, you know, CDC uh, coming out with the guidelines about mask wearing. And, you know, we did just hear the governor, uh, you know, talk about, you know, he's just taking a very conservative approach and he's not ready to throw the masks out just yet. Um, you know, what can you share with us about, you know, where the DOE sits with this? Well, I, I think we are staying very focused on transitioning to the, the full reopening with three major strategies, health strategies still in place. Masking is one of them while you're on DOE uh, properties. Uh, the other is um, hand washing, uh, and uh, the other is uh, making sure uh, that we are staying home when, when ill. Right? If you're feeling ill, stay home and, and take that precaution. 
Uh, there are some other layered strategies the schools are using. Uh, some of them are still doing some distancing and using some dividers for, for desks or um, doing some of those other strategies. Uh, and so we are uh, being uh, very careful as we reopen to make sure that we continue to watch what's happening on the national front, but also watching what's happening here in terms of our own uh, uh, COVID positivity cases. But we're in great shape. We have uh, approximately 80% of our teachers vaccinated. Uh, we have about 50% of our staff that were vaccinated through our own uh, clinics and many on their own in terms of their, their private doctors. Uh, and as I stated, we've had over 100 student-based clinics for students who are 12 years old and over. The more uh, vaccinated uh, students and adults we have, uh, the safer it will be for everyone, including our students who are under the age of 12, who are not going to be vaccinated at this time. You know, we did reach out to the head of the Hawaii State Teachers Association, the, the teachers union, uh, Osa Tui. Uh, he uh, did express, you know, some concern about the, oh, I guess the 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 fact that, you know, parents and some teachers do want the option of remote learning. Uh, here's what he had to say. The other concern we have is that our students younger than 12 don't even have access to vaccinations. And without access to vaccinations, there's a lot of parents who are rightfully concerned about possibly spread of the virus to their children. And right now, there's no state setup option for those parents to give their students, to give their children a distance learning option. Last summer, the Department of Education surveyed all parents and said, okay, which one of you want to keep your kids home and which don't? They didn't make any effort to do that this summer. And so schools are left scrambling. I've talked to principals who've seen me, and they're asking, so what's the plan? And I, I really don't have any answer to that. Uh, so, Christina, how do you respond to that, you know, the concern that we need to have a distance learning option? Yeah, so first let me start by just welcoming Osatui. He is our new HSTA president. Um, and uh, I know the team looks forward to working with him in this next school year. Uh, he is highly experienced. Uh, you know, my latest interactions with him as he was uh, a teacher, uh, a registrar at uh, McKinley High School. Uh, and so glad to see him in that leadership role. Uh, his, his concern is uh, a concern. It's a legitimate concern raised uh, by others as well. Uh, many of our parents have been asking for schools to reopen and to normalize schedules to the greatest degree possible and have students back with their peers and with their teachers and with principals and other staff members. And so we know there's this big push for that. We are going to have some families that are not comfortable yet. Uh, and, and, and by virtue of this being a health pandemic, we should expect that. And so we have each of the complex areas of which we have 15 uh, in the state of Hawaii, who have been planning for and, and examining the, their capacity to be able to offer some distance learning options by school or by complex area. And so those are, um, those are options that each parent should be reaching out to their own school to see what's available. One of the challenges we have is, one, uh, we do not have an increase in the number of teacher positions as we go into next school year, which means that in order to open up all classrooms, 
uh, there is not an extra set of teachers to then work via distance learning. And so capacity-wise, we, uh, we need greater capacity to be able to offer that. We can and have procured a online program where we can offer uh, some limited opportunities for those parents who want to opt for a longer period period of time uh, out of school and and learning via technology. Uh, You know, the question I have around that is making sure your child can be successful uh, via that learning approach, because we know many students uh, did struggle with that, especially if you don't have a teacher that's directly teaching that that distance learning class. And we don't have the capacity to do that widespread um, additional option. It's a capacity challenge for us, and it's one that we're working through and are committed to continue to work through to provide best options, learning options for our students. And we did have the problems with the Acellus uh, Learning Accelerator, uh, you know, with that program. And I understand that uh, the DOE has a, a new contract with uh, K-12 Stride. We do. We have a new contract and we are not using, uh, we have phased out uh, the, the contract in the use of Acellus. Uh, we expanded that use, as you're aware, many in the public are aware. Uh, we started running into curriculum that had not been previously used, previously used that was really not up to date and not appropriate. And so we've done away with that and transitioned to K-12 Stride. Uh, that has, uh, we've done a, a vetting of that. that. You know, even with a quality online curriculum, we still um, need to have teachers involved with uh, grading, checking in with students, ensuring that they are progressing appropriately, that they're doing the full scope. We don't want students losing more instructional time this year. And, you know, uh, there were no plans to survey parents about the remote learning option. Uh, any reason why? Well, we're doing it by school. Uh, principals are, um, are collecting information by school Uh, to know what their community needs. Uh, We are uh, maximizing uh, a diversity of options. There are other ways in which principals are making accommodations and adjustments for for parents uh, who are not comfortable coming back uh, and also making sure that we are having conversations with parents about how their child did this school year using that distance learning. If they were not successful, if they were not engaged, um, uh, really having the opportunity between educator and parent uh, to have that conversation about the best learning approach. And that's a school-based conversation as opposed to using some uh, broad survey. Uh, we already did a survey that, that had parents state that they wanted school to reopen. Uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, again, it's not about continuously doing surveys in a broad stroke, but getting really down to the individual family information, which is held at the school level. Well, if you're just joining the conversation, we are talking about the fall school year opening up just in a few weeks. Do you have Keiki who were affected by remote learning last year? What are you looking forward to this year? Join our discussion with School Superintendent Christina Shimoto by calling us at 941 941- 3689 or call 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Uh, and, you know, Christina, when we talked to um, Osatui this morning, you know, he did applaud the teachers for being so creative, uh, but, you know, knows that, that this year is going to be a challenge. Here's what he had to say. Our teachers have been so creative this past year, 
and a lot of them have found that you know they can do they can do excellent lessons in distance learning. But the hard part is when you have to do distance learning and classroom teaching at the same time. It's really difficult to handle when it's happening simultaneously. So we don't want that to happen. And what the Board of Ed is saying right now is, well, you know, maybe this hybrid option is, is something we need to consider. And I understand that uh, there's a board meeting this week and they'll, you know, be talking about what the plans are uh, for uh, the return to the classroom. But I know um, Oso was concerned because he said, well, if you do have the option of a distance learning, um, He's worried that the the teachers may have too much on their plate, you know, that it would be hard to deal with the students in the classroom and then also the the remote learning as well. And I think he was advocating for having a Hawaii-based teacher in the complex to help coordinate. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Well, each complex is um, actually reviewing their plans and looking at their capacity. Again, capacity is a major concern. Um, he's speaking to the possibility of having some teachers dedicated to distance learning. Again, for every teacher we dedicate to distance learning, we're pulling a teacher out of the classroom. Uh, and that's the challenge. We have the same FTEs to work with. Uh, that would require, if we're shifting some teachers to only distance learning, that would mean teachers in the classrooms would have to agree that they're going to have a larger class size. These are all difficult questions around the, the limited resources we have. Uh, that's not to say we don't have great resources. We have 13,000 great teachers in this state, uh, and they're doing a great job for another year while we're still in this health pandemic transition. It's still going to be challenging uh, to be able to fully reopen. Uh, we really need to protect as many teacher uh, FTEs or, or, or uh, full-time equivalents in the classroom uh, to address students in person, which is going to limit our ability to do blended or full distance learning. And again, you know, I, I think teachers will say this, principals will say this. I agree with this. It is, uh, it is difficult to uh, have the same kind of quality of learning if you don't have a teacher leading it online. And so we'll have to provide some of those opportunities without a teacher teaching each lesson online, which means that parents will have to agree that students will be learning uh, in a more self-paced way uh, using technology with occasional or periodic check-ins, I should say, by teachers. We did see the enrollments drop, I think, in both public and private schools. And we were hearing a, a lot about uh, homeschooling co-ops, you know, where where uh, families got together as kind of a hui to help each other out just because they were just concerned about about catching COVID in the classroom. I know uh, Osa said that, yeah, he was really glad that the teachers responded so well uh, to the call to get vaccinated. We were only able to do a survey of our complete entire membership and about 11,000 people took that survey. And at that point, about 70 Seven zero percent of them said that they were either starting their vaccinations, they were in the middle of it, or they were going to get their vaccination. So we're pretty confident that as of this point, that was early February, so as of this point, we're sure that it's well above 70%. Our teachers are very thankful that they had the option to get vaccinated in Tier 2. That's not something that has been the same across the country, and so they did take advantage of that opportunity.
you know, so again, I know you mentioned you thought it was maybe closer to to 80% of our teachers being, or staff being uh, vaccinated. Yes, as we start to calculate how many we had that we were able to do through partnership clinics uh, that DOH uh, uh, coordinated with with our healthcare providers, we know that that 50% went through those. Uh, additionally, we have teachers who have indicated that they, on their own, went to their doctors and to, to other public clinics that were offered. So I think it's closer to 80% at this point, which is uh, basically what OSA uh, is saying as well. Back in February, it's around 70% at this point. It's closer to 80%. We're really excited about that kind of turnout and, and commitment from our teachers. It's really about our uh, community working together to ensure uh, that, that we do have this, you know, herd immunity in order to keep everyone safe, including those who, for self for health reasons or other reasons, are not able to get vaccinated, including our children under the, the age of 12. Are you worried, though, about the enrollment, you know, that if folks don't have an uh, online uh, distance learning option that they're comfortable with, that, you know, they might just opt to homeschool their students, the kids? I think on the homeschool front, we're finding the same thing, which is parents are going to be relying on uh, either if they they can pull together um, kind of a a learning community to support one another. That's fantastic. Uh, If they're not able to be part of uh, a learning community in that fashion, uh, they're relying on a program. And and that program doesn't necessarily come with a teacher. Uh, and uh, we saw across the nation enrollment drop, and Hawaii is not unusual in that. It's pretty typical what we saw uh, in Hawaii as compared to the rest of the state. And my expectation is that we're going to start seeing students start to return to in-person learning as parents uh, uh, in, in, uh, start to have more confidence in uh, the, the, the safety of schools, uh, as well as um, uh, the safety of community to be uh, fully engaged again. We know parents are, are struggling now, trying to figure out where their child is learning at the same time that they're trying to get back to work or have lost employment and are trying to look for a job, which becomes very difficult to then also uh, oversee um, the learning of their children. So we do believe we're going to have that re-engagement, re-enrollment back into school. Yeah, I mean, if, if we don't, if our enrollment continues to um, to stay at the levels you know, that we're at, I mean, it, it means less federal funding, right? Well, it, it means uh, less per pupil funding, mm-hmm. less federal funding. Uh, at the same time, uh, from the parent perspective, that it's considering whether they, they continue to have uh, their child homeschool, it does mean their uh, their, their uh, potential interruption to their employment, and so there are challenges there. So it's really about families making those balanced decisions, and, and we're hearing from them. We're hearing from them uh, related to uh, whether they, if they're homeschooled, whether they can be supported with a teacher. Well, that that's the school environment that we provide, and so if you're homeschooling, you're taking that on as a family on your own. Um, and that's that's quite challenging. The, the drop in enrollment was particularly in the the lower grades, especially kindergarten, and those were the youngest students that, that the youngest children that families were keeping home. Uh, we did not see that as much in the upper grades, and so I do believe that with younger children, with uh, with, fam- with parents returning back to the workplace, we're going to see those younger children re-enrolled and back in schools. 
How do you think we did for our special education students? Well, I think we, uh, uh, our teachers and our service providers uh, did tremendous, a tremendous job in providing support and making adjustments. One of the things that we said was any anything that we, any, any approach we were using, we needed to make sure we were making uh, uh, the kind of adjusted support for all of our students to be able to fully participate. And so we had that commitment. Uh, and we continue to have our IEP meetings and use technology in a very different way. Uh, one thing that we certainly learned about is that uh, there are some support services that can be provided in highly effective ways uh, using distance technology. Uh, and we used it in a, to an extent that we didn't in the past. And so I think there's been a lot of growth and learning for the system, for our employees that provide those services, and for our families who have had to learn how to use that technology to stay connected and to keep those services going. So I think we did a great job. We're going we're gonna to see where we need to provide additional support uh, the fact is that it is even more challenging uh, when you're providing not only core education, but wraparound services uh, without having the face-to-face -face time and opportunity. We're, we're going to learn a lot, Catherine, as we reopen schools and see students in person. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about what the actual need is. And, and in no way do we think we have a full understanding of that until we're with our students in person. And I know that you do have vans uh, that uh, help to support the special ed uh, students, you know, getting them to the classroom. Uh, where are we at on the bus contracts? So we're in great shape. We are uh, uh, have made lots of adjustments during this time, and our uh, our uh, our bus contract providers, uh, bus companies, have been highly flexible and very supportive during the pandemic uh, during this year. Uh, because of the pandemic, certainly our school bus demand was decreased uh, tremendously, but we also started using uh, some of our fleets in very different ways, including helping to get uh, food out to remote areas, including putting together the, the YES buses, which provided uh, 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 resources that we could push out into community, including delivering laptops, uh, connectivity uh, hubs, or serving as connectivity hubs. Um, getting uh, just basic needs, uh, including uh, things like uh, uh, toothpaste and hairbrushes and, and materials out to families that were really struggling during this time period. And so we'll adjust those back to providing support as kids come into schools uh, and continue to monitor things like attendance and whether families are still struggling to get, get out into schools on a regular basis. Well, if you're just joining us, this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Are you a public school teacher or have young ones who are looking forward to school reopening in August? You can join our conversa uh, conversation with the school superintendent by calling one 941 3689 Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. 
Imagine if your employer said, we're shortening the working week. I go to the gym more and facilitate meeting friends more and also just some days just sitting and watching Netflix. I mean, I would say I'm happier with this change. Happier and just as productive, according to new research from Iceland. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store, rethinking the work week. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our guest uh, is outgoing Department of Education School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto. And, uh, Christina, you had mentioned food service. What do parents need to know about breakfast and lunch as the kids return to the classroom? Well, we are continuing to work with uh, our, our federal partners around ensuring that students have full access in school. We know there was a tremendous uh, uh, demand, uh, increased demand uh, to deliver in different ways. It'll uh, uh, having schools fully reopen will facilitate ensuring that that students are getting um, all of their meals or their breakfast and lunch meals at school, which is extremely important. Our schools are working with families around the information that we have to continue to collect for for the federal information, but. Uh, the federal government's letting us know, you know, across the nation, we they, there needs to be continued flexibility in providing, uh, uh, to the greatest extent, free meals to families. We have an increase in the number of schools that are actually eligible for uh, free meals across the entire school, and we're going to continue to see an analysis of that data throughout the year. And we really appreciate the the partnership uh, in doing this with. Uh, both our federal uh, partners, but also uh, Department of uh, Human Services here in the state of Hawaii, who has been a great partner with us in making sure it's not only the kids being taken care of, but the entire family with lots of uh, wraparound supports with meals. And how do we do lunches? Because, you know, we did have the bento lunches, I think, right, and staggered uh, lunch breaks. Um, any thoughts about that? Because, I mean, gosh, I think we certainly use a lot of the plastic utensils, <laughs> you know, just because of the safety issue. Um, so what's the cafeteria going to look like? Do you know? Well, there's, there's um, each, you know, each cafeteria is, is built and designed in different ways. And so our schools are uh, have, have organized themselves throughout this past year and will continue into this next year. Uh, to adjust uh, based on number of students that they can have safely in the cafeteria. They have done everything from buying uh, portable uh, kind of uh, mini lap tables and cushions for students to sit throughout the campus and to spread out, uh, but to still have that opportunity to, to, um, to, to be with their friends, um, and, and to have that collaboration time with them. Uh, and so we'll continue to do that. We have some cafeterias that have uh, table uh, plexiglass dividers that allow students still to heal one another and to safely take off their masks to, 
to eat and have that mass break while they're having their meals, which is also important and is part of ensuring that it's uh, it's a positive and safe uh, uh, time period for students to take off that mask and get get a break from it as well. You know, uh, we did uh, hear from uh, some parents. Uh, there was one uh, who said that you know the psychological effects of kind of growing up with COVID-19 on, on very young children is very is very stressful. You know, mask wearing, social distancing is normal for them. And this whole idea of lifting the restrictions is stressful for some young children. Now my, my daughter is five years old and she was like a corona starter when she was three years old. So, you know, so she used to it too much. So she's afraid to take off the mask. It's like a, psychologically she believes coronavirus all everywhere in the coronavirus. So you, she has to wear a mask, you know, that that's easier for me. The parents doesn't need to force to her wear a mask, please wear a mask. Now she's automatically she wears a mask when she go out. Yeah. So the young ones, you know, that's a concern, right? Some might just be scared uh, to go back to the classroom. So yeah. How do we how do we ease those fears? Oh, I think there are um, lots of transitions uh, that need to be put in place for our, uh, our young people as they come back into into the classroom. As much as we say we want to um, uh, be responsive to, to the parents' demand to, to normalize as quickly as possible, um, you know, what is normal is going to require transitions uh, towards that more normal environment of moving at some point away from needing to mask. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a process of teaching uh, those safety uh, protocols, and then it's a process to start moving away from those safety protocols. So I, I think that that parent that spoke uh, is also speaking to the importance of, of not saying, you know, we're, we're going to go from masking to no masking and no protocols right away because uh, you know, a an entity, you know, a health entity has stated, like the CDC, that that it's not as necessary anymore uh, in certain environments. Well, that's the guidance. That then you have to also deal with how we as humans go through and manage changes. Uh, and schools are, are used to this. You know, whether it's another emergency situation, whether it's other trauma that students have been involved with, you have to teach. Uh, that and provide opportunities and supports for kids to talk about it as well. And our schools are all ready to, to do that. That's an important part of, of that learning environment. You know, uh, we did uh, uh, reach out to uh, principals, uh, you know, across the state. And I know, gosh, I think it was Aikahi Elementary. You know, you had mentioned that the students were brought in the fourth quarter, right? Uh, kind of ease into it. And, and, and I think they had a little video posted online just to let the students know what to expect uh, for those who were a little apprehensive about coming back. Um, you know, we did hear from another mother, Olivia, who says that, you know, uh, I think they still had younger cousins that were still in school. And she thinks that, you know, aside from just learning, that it's important that the, the students have the social network that comes with in-person learning. I think it's definitely good for them to have those social interactions, especially when they're so young. So I think it's a good idea as long as it's safe. Just, you know, watching the COVID outbreak and making sure the kids are staying far apart and like following all the regulations. You know, and of course, you know, with the CDC, you know, guidelines, different states are, are uh, 
returning to the classroom, you know, with a different uh, comfort level. Uh, we also yeah. got some feedback from another parent, uh, Janet Kwong. She emailed this in. She says, this is a difficult topic. I have mixed feelings about it. On one hand, we've not reached the 70% goal by the governor to get rid of most of the restrictions. On the other hand, if the DOE follows CDC guidelines and publicly explains the safety measures in place, I would like my children to go back to the classroom. I especially would like one of my daughters, an incoming high school senior, to be able to finish up her high school experience on campus and be able to interact with her classmates and her teachers in person. I would want her to not miss the experience of special in-person events like club activities, proms. You know, that being said, ultimately opening the DOE and activities needs to be safe and carefully planned. If there is a case in school or a rise in COVID cases, I would like to know the detailed plans of the school to handle different situations. Communication, expectations with the students, parents, faculty, administrators, and the public is key. Above all, the safety and the well-being of everyone comes first. So that was from Janet Kwong. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the the legislature just uh, overrode the governor's veto about the reporting in the complexes of the COVID cases. So how's the DOE looking at that? We are looking at how we provide that information in partnership with the Department of Health to make sure that the, the information that gets pushed out uh, is accurate uh, and provides the balance, again, between uh, uh, ensuring that uh, we provide information that's helpful for the community in their uh, own decision-making and also uh, allows for the privacy of individuals of, of their health information. Uh, this is, this is a, 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 an important matter uh, in ensuring that, in fact, when we're reporting information, it truly is about public health matters and, and, and uh, the safety of the public. Um, uh, I'd like to see that if this is, you know, the, the legislature's perspective was that this is a, uh, a public health matter, uh, but it's only directed to public schools. Uh, you know, I, I believe that if this is a public health matter, then it should be directed to any entity that uh, is providing education uh, during the school day uh, that is that is part of our community. So that would be every every type of school, uh, and that's not true. This legislation only focuses on on public schools. But we will serve as a model for how that information is shared, and again, be good partners um, to again continue uh, to have good safety protocols. I will say I'm very proud of the work we did this year in partnership with DOH, uh, with our safety protocols, with the information we pushed out with the contact tracing that was done to notify anyone that was in proximity of anyone that, that, that hit, that had, that was positive, you know, whether that person was in school or doing distance learning, uh, we were pushing out that information very quickly. Uh, and we've had a very successful year with managing uh, very sensitive health information. You know, uh, what do you think we learned about the technology piece of, of this uh, during COVID? Well, you know, I think we learned a lot about technology during COVID. And, and I think Hawaii um, has had to confront the issue that we, uh, we have systems that need to be modernized. 
the, you know, whether it's on the instructional end, whether it was in terms of unemployment insurance or whether it's uh, reporting of health information, uh, you know, during this COVID period, uh, the state has had to create new uh, systems for reporting out and collecting information and has also had to contend with, uh, you know, antiquated systems that made uh, the, the, the delivery of services to communities very difficult during this crisis period. And I think this is a call to action for the state to really look at the time period and the investment in modernizing its systems. The Department of Ed in, uh, itself, uh, during this time period, has been working on replacing its entire financial management system, which we know is 30 years um, old and is and has had and should have been replaced decades ago. Uh, and you know, uh, while we didn't receive funding for this again, which really speaks to the lack of investment in in moving on modern modernization of systems, uh, we've been working hard on getting that system. Uh, modernize, and we're going live at the end of this week with a new system. Uh, we worked with that through the pandemic, and we've also replaced our whole email infrastructure pre-pandemic, thankfully. Uh, but we know that even with that, we have families that didn't have connectivity. We have families who didn't have devices. Um, there, There is this larger policy issue uh, about uh, the, the connectivity that should be guaranteed for families who are part of the public school system. And that's just one of the technology issues, policy issues that are, that's been raised there. There are multiple matters that I think as a state, we need to be very strategic about pushing forward on. You know, I think it was four years ago, I think that uh, there were stories about how there was some dedicated uh, DOE employee that was keeping a Wang computer going because, you know, uh, we didn't have uh, the systems, a, a modern computer system to really deal with just the volume of reports and, and you know, that, that are generated within a, a statewide system uh, like the DOE is. And, and so, I don't know, so do you feel that uh, what... Maybe the lawmakers didn't give us enough money in that area this year? Well, I will say that, no, they didn't give us enough money. We uh, we struggled at the beginning of this pandemic when I um, asked for uh, funding to uh, be able to push uh, devices out to families who did not have a device in the home. So here we are. We shut the school system down. We're going to do distance learning, and we have families who don't have a device or connectivity at home. Um, and, and I had to figure out how to fund that with the with, with the budget we had, and how to uh, and our principals had to figure out how to break down laptop carts and send uh, laptops home. So when the, the the state was shutting down, our educators were in full safety gears. You know, delivering technology, holding uh, uh, locations or, or, or uh, announcing locations where where hotspots and uh, devices could be picked up. We were outfitting vans to push out technology out into communities. Uh, we became an operation that uh, we're not designed to do uh, uh, in terms of uh, the kind of work uh, and support we needed from outside of us to get this done. Uh, and I think it speaks to not only how do how does the the state support the the school system that acts as a safety net for community during times of crisis, uh, 
Uh, but it also speaks to how do we modernize systems so that we have a good starting point uh, if and when there's a crisis, but just in terms of uh, being a, a state that really has the kind of modernized technology it needs to be competitive in this global uh, economy. And so I think it's raised, you know, everything from the safety net issue all the way up to the competitive global technology kind of questions uh, in terms of how we're positioning ourselves in Hawaii. We talk about working from home. Do we have the infrastructure to do that, uh, uh, to, to support our, our various uh, fields of work? Again, lots of questions, lots of needs, I think, that were raised. That's not a bad thing. I think now it's a matter of are we going to learn from this pandemic and take action to do things and to have a better infrastructure than we've had. You know, we did hear from Marion Wheeler, who's a vice principal of Maliwana Intermediate School. Here's what she had to say about technology. The teachers started doing Google Classroom. They started working on posting lessons and doing different types of platforms to reach the students. Now, I'm thinking that's something that's going to stay, where the teachers may have that Google Classroom, a kid's out of, you know, absent maybe one day. They can go in and the teacher posts it to Google Classroom. They can see what's going on. Maybe they videotape their lesson or, or they upload it so kids can get the lesson when they're not there. The other thing is the uh, distance learning. For kids, there are students who are not comfortable being on a campus. I mean, we have close to 1,100 kids. It's overwhelming. It's hard. We've seen many students and many families talk about how successful it has been for their family to have them always virtual on a learning platform that's not presented by the school. And they have family time. They get up. They may go exercise together. The student's online. Then they do other things. And so we're seeing a lot of that as another option of distance learning or or extra classes that the students may be able to do to get extra, you know, maybe not from middle school, but high school. If they have some online learning, they can make extra credits. They could take college courses. And just looking at how we can use technology and distance learning as a part of the future. You know, and we, as we talk about the future, you know, you will be leaving the DOE in a couple of weeks here. Um, uh, you know, have you been working with your uh, uh, interim replacement <laughs> uh, from Waipahu High School, Keith? Well, what I'm doing is working on uh, leaving as much in order so he can come in and uh, find things organized uh, because of the time period between when I end and when he starts. Uh, it's only a few days uh, before school starts as well. And so we're having transition meetings, which is important, uh, and making sure that, that he has what he needs as he comes in to lead. Uh, the, the seamless transition of leadership is extremely important to me, and I, I committed to make sure that I was here through summer school um, and through uh, the federal application for our ESSA funds, um, and all of that is in place as well as would, would make sure that I complete my uh, work that, uh, uh, to have the new financial management system um, up and running, which will happen this, uh, at the end of this week. And so really closing that out and transitioning uh, to him. I do want to say, uh, just make a, a small comment about the, the principal's uh, comment about the instructional, uh, new instructional modalities. And I mm -hmm. think this is something that as Keith Hayashi comes in as the, the next interim, uh, as the interim superintendent, uh, for him to, to carry forward, 
that's important is it's the option for new learning model in the DOE. We've talked about this before. I think pre-pandemic, we felt like uh, it was, we weren't sure if this was a lift that we can take on in terms of this new model. We have shown that it is not only something that we can accomplish, but we can start thinking differently about uh, how we're hiring, how we're using instructional time, where learning is occurring, and even thinking about a policy where parents who come into the public school system can elect to, just like with the Kaipuni program that allows you to learn in Olelo Hawaii or English, to have parents to have the option to learn via distance learning or in an in-person seat. That's going to take design, but I think it's an exciting opportunity to think about new policy or policy, new policies for these new learning opportunities and structures. The time is now to do this work. Um, and we should not lose uh, the momentum that we have now to think differently about staffing and instructional time and, and choices for families. Uh, that has to be very intentional, though. It shouldn't just be a response to a pandemic. And I think that's the go-forward opportunity we have. You know, I, I know you have been visiting the schools, uh, you know, as they were winding up uh, the academic year uh, for, for uh 2020, 2021. Um, I don't know. Uh, are there any, I guess, accomplishments that you're particularly proudest of, you know, that you've been able to achieve in the last four years? There's a number of things that I, the team has accomplished together and very excited about all of the work that we've been doing around really understanding the power of, of uh, diverse school design models has led to some interesting innovations around academy designs, around uh, increased opportunities for students to uh, work um, uh, part of their instructional time in the field with businesses and, and having applied learning opportunities, uh, working on INA-based projects having to do with sustainability. Uh, those are all important uh, accomplishments that, that need to continue to be built on, built on. We adopted new computer science standards and started out that rollout of curriculum uh, and that, that has to continue to uh, roll down the grades. So we started with the upper grades. We need to have continued work in the elementary schools. We also rolled out innovation grants for teachers. Uh, and uh, I had about a half million dollars of innovation grants that rolled out, and teachers are innovating uh, using their, uh, their own teacher team ideas. Uh, and that's something I'd like to see continued. We also uh, started the Climb High Partnership. Uh, which allows uh, us to have a, a major partner who's helping us to connect business and industry with what kids are learning in the classroom, uh, including speakers and internships and so forth. Uh, we also modernized our systems uh, recently, uh, you know, from email all the way to what we're going to do with the FMS uh, system. Uh, and uh, uh, the other thing I, I will point out is that I'm very proud that our communications team during the toughest time of our pandemic won three communications, national communication awards this year. So, yes, we continue to push out. We also were able to uh, receive a $50 million national competitive grant for literacy. Uh, uh, and I'm very proud of that and the work that's happening around improving uh, literacy approaches and math uh, uh, approaches in our system. So uh, lots of things have happened, and, and I think this is 
uh, we've provided some foundations for empowerment and innovation that can be built upon. How do you think the pandemic um, affected, um, I don't know, our test scores? Well, I think that when we get back to uh, what would be the, the state assessment and looking at uh, those test scores, um, we've had lots of interrupted learning time, and, and we should expect that though it'll show up in test scores when we have the students come back um, into the learning environment. I think we're going to learn a lot more from the more formative assessments about how students leverage this opportunity uh, this interrupted opportunity to learn in different ways, um, and and to and we will also learn about ways in which we need to provide some differentiated supports to students who have experienced some trauma and and have really disconnected from learning. So I our test scores uh, I expect will be all over the place, and we're going to need to analyze that those results to see. Uh, who uh, uh, continued on their pace of learning and where learning was interrupted to provide that re-engagement and support to those students. Pre-pandemic, we had students who were struggling, uh, and it's really important to, uh, uh, to look at uh, what has happened with those students, whether they fell further behind uh, and need some different ways of engaging them. I think what we have from the pandemic as an outcome is this opportunity to think differently about instructional strategies, uh, again, and how we're engaging students. And doing away with, with, I think, things that maybe lean more into the traditional ways of doing things as opposed to what are the most effective ways uh, that really, where we really see uh, outcomes, student learning outcomes. Uh, that show how students are advancing in their learning. You know, we did have uh, a listener uh, comment on Facebook. Amy Sato uh, wrote, good luck in your new venture. Can you share with us what your future plans are? You've got about a minute left. So thank you to Amy for the for the good luck. I am uh, uh, transitioning. I am going to keep doing my equity work and my empowerment work, uh, particularly focused on Women Leaders and Empowerment, I am starting my own company called Voice for Equity, and we'll be doing a soft launch of that in the next few weeks uh, and encourage folks to, to follow me on Voice for Equity on my Twitter handle, uh, and we'll be launching a website that speaks to some of the both national and local work that I'll be doing around preparing women as policy leaders to lift community and to get at those hard equity issues that we need to get to. Well, Superintendent, we thank you for your time. We thank you for uh, uh, being a a model for uh, our young uh, educators and administrators out there. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today. And we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. If you have a comment to share uh, about the show, call our talk back line at 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.